Napa know-how. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolor paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Parenting Aces radio show on Blog Talk Radio's You Are Tennis Network. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and as promised, today we have a great interview with recently retired professional tennis player Michael Russell, and I will get to that in just a second. But before I hit play, on Mike's interview, I want to just put in another plug for the Saul Schwartz Save College Tennis All-In Tennis Tournament happening in Baltimore, Maryland, August 20th and 21st. If you haven't signed your children up yet, your junior players up yet, I hope you'll take a look at the tournament website. You can find a link to it on the Parenting Aces Facebook page, on our Twitter feed, on our website. Um, This is going to be a great, great event in honor of my good friend, tennis's good friend, Saul Schwartz, who passed away suddenly this past March at the age of 47, and um, we're really hoping to do him justice in terms of honoring the work that he committed himself to, to promote college tennis, to promote the game of tennis in general. And our tournament is being presented by Hollabird Sports, which is where Saul worked, and is also being sponsored by TennisBalls.com and the Casimir Physical Therapy in Baltimore. So I hope you guys will take a look at that tournament and really consider signing your kids up. It will count toward their UTR. And though it's not USTA sanctioned, it is perfect for anybody age 18 and under. The draws are open, which means they are not age specific. We will have one 16 draw for the boys and one 16 draw for the girls. And um, we have an amazing prize package thanks to Wilson Tennis and to Hollabird Sports. Uh, the winners of each of the boys and the girls' draws will receive this incredible prize of two rackets of their choosing, a racket bag, clothing, shoes, string. I mean, it's just awesome. So huge, huge thank you to Hollabird and Wilson for making that happen and also to TennisBalls.com and Casimir Physical Therapy for sponsoring our event this year. And So that said, um, let me hit play on the Mike Russell interview, and I hope you guys enjoy this. Michael was such a pleasure to speak to. Uh, For those of you who don't know, he lives in the Houston area and is running a junior academy there. So if you're in that part of the world and looking for a place for your junior to train, check him out. All right, enjoy the interview, and I'll see you back here live next Tuesday. Thanks. Hey, we love Burger King grilled dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%. Mm, they're so good, they make us want to sing like, I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. July 23rd is the most important holiday of the year, National Hot Dog Day. Celebrate by going to Burger King and asking for the Dollar Classic Grilled Dog deal. How else are you going to celebrate? Try the $1 Classic Grilled Dog only at Burger King. At participating restaurants, July 23rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Parenting Aces Radio Show on Blog Talk Radio's UR Tennis Network. I'm your host, Lisa Stone. And this week, we have the pleasure of Michael Russell uh, joining us from Houston. And this is a pre-recorded interview with Michael, so I hope you guys enjoy it. I apologize that we won't be able to take callers this week, but um, I suspect that Michael has lots of great stories to share about his tennis journey and his life now that he has retired from professional tennis. So I'm not going to keep him on hold any longer. Let me bring Michael on. 
Michael, thank you so much for joining us and uh, getting up early on this Monday morning to record the interview with me. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, I'm always up early. <laughs> it's no problem. <laughs> I look forward to talking with you. Fantastic. So one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the show is you have really covered the entire gamut of tennis from playing in the juniors, playing college tennis, playing professionally, and now continuing to stay in the tennis world from a business side. And I would love to have you share some of your tennis journey with us. And to start, I would love to hear from you what your experiences were like as a junior player and, you know, who you co- who your coaches were, um, your favorite tournaments, and, and some of your experiences at that level. So let's start there. Yeah, no, definitely. It's been uh, an incredible journey, you know, not only 17 years on the tour, but like you said, you know, growing up and playing all the junior tournaments and college and then progressing into the pros. I, I grew up in Michigan, and funny, uh, quite funny is that Michigan actually has a, a ton of players that went on to become very good professionals, you know, not only myself, but Todd Martin, Mal Washington, the Jensen brothers, uh, Williams sisters are from Michigan, Aaron Crickstein, uh, you know, for, for a small state in the Midwest, it's, you know, unusual to have such accomplished players come out of a, a state like that. I'm not sure why, but, you know, seven months of the year we were playing indoors, and I started when I was five years old. You know, that's the first time my parents really put a, put a racket in my hand. Started with a wood racket. I'm not I'm not that old, but I did start with a wood racket when I first started playing tennis <laughs> at five. And I was fortunate that I have an older brother. He's three years older, and you know, my parents. I grew up in a, in a tennis family. My father played collegiately at University of Michigan. And my mother was a good recreational player, so they they taught both my brother and I to play tennis. So growing up, I was able to practice with my brother quite a bit. You know, I think my parents did a great job as far as keeping it fresh. You know, I wasn't I wasn't just specialized in tennis. I played soccer, I played little league baseball, and I really didn't focus on tennis until I was fourteen. And that's when I realized that, you know, hey, I was really good at the sport and I wanted to concentrate playing tennis every single day and actually wanted to be a pro, you know, around 15 years old. So my father was my coach. He was owner and manager of an indoor tennis club. So I was able to get court time, very fortunate, and I spent about two hours a day from 14 to 17, you know, practicing tennis, not only with local pros, but with my father. And it leads me to the point, I didn't really come up through a group program. You know, I, I, and what I believe today, I feel one-on-one hitting and training is much more beneficial than four kids on a court trying to hit a lot of balls. I just feel from a development standpoint, it's very difficult to really progress at a level that's, that's necessary. So fortunate being able to, you know, hit with pros one-on-one, and then my father would, you know, take time out of his busy day and, and, you know, feed me a lot of balls and work on stuff every single day. So you say you weren't in a group program. So when you were hitting, were you hitting with adults? Were you hitting with other kids as well? Was there a nice mix of that, or was there a focus on one over the other? I would say there was a nice mix of that. I, I would hit with my brother quite a bit, and then I would hit with adult pros and play sets and sporadically play tournaments throughout the year. But I was I was a good athlete growing up, so I would play, you know, in between the tournaments, I would play soccer, I would play baseball. So I was always very excited when I stepped on court. You know, I didn't really have that burnout phase, you know, where I was spending four hours on a tennis court and their, you know, their quantity took over the quality. And I think that was instrumental in my development and, and my success, you know, just being on the tennis court and 
really in everyday life, you know, it's more about quality. Yes, you do have to have repetition, but it has to be quality repetition. You can't just be mindlessly hitting tennis balls. It just doesn't, it doesn't progress to anything. It's not great for development. Right. And, I mean, one of the things in your professional tennis life, you know, every time you would step on court, the commentators would always discuss the fact that you were usually not the taller of the the um, competitors on the court. I'm wondering if your size impacted your development, you know, impacted your hunger uh, to to get better as a junior, or, or were you height wise competitive with your your um, peers at that point? Is that the way Lisa is saying that I was a little bit small? <laughs> um, I'm trying to be politically no. <laughs> correct here. I, <laughs> we're, I, I'm from a small family, so so I'm sensitive to that. No, so so yes, I mean especially nowadays tennis um, on the pro tour, the average height is six foot two and growing even taller. You know, you see quite a bit of guys six foot five, and even the women as well. You know, five eleven that move well. In juniors, I was always about, you know, between, you know, 5'5 five, five and 5'8. And, and, you know, even in junior tennis, the, the players started to get bigger and stronger and taller. And a lot of the coaches, you know, they didn't really think I had a future because of that reason. And I just added that to my motivation. You know, I knew my father believed in me, my family believed in me, but most important, I believed in myself, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, you are your own coach. You know, especially in tennis, being the only one out there. You know, you can have a huge team, which is important. It's extremely important to have a great support team. But I had to believe in myself. So I was always out there trying to prove people wrong, you know, that I can make it. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be six feet tall. You don't have to serve 140 miles an hour. And I had that mindset all through juniors. And, and I know I haven't talked about it yet, about when I really decided to get extremely fit and create that dedicated fitness and preparation routine. But once I established that, then my game really took off, you know, not only in juniors, but collegiately and in the pros. And I think part of the reason was because I was so disciplined and dedicated and motivated to prove to people that I can be successful, you know, at every level. doesn't matter your size. doesn't matter what people label you. It matters what, you know, you believe in yourself and that you can accomplish anything. Well, that's a great segue to talk about your off-court training because I actually read an article you wrote for the Universal Tennis website's blog about your fitness and nutrition and your commitment to that, and and it started really young. Yeah, it it did. I, I was a good junior player. I was, you know, one of the top players in Michigan, I had a good sectional ranking in Westerns, but my fitness wasn't where it needed to be. You know, I was, I was 14 years old, and, you know, I would lose a lot of matches because I would fatigue, you know, especially later on in the tournaments. And my game style was trying to run around, hit forehands. I liked to hit my forehand as hard as I could, a little bit like Jim Courier. And I was very very fast you know, kind of like Michael Chang. So, like, you know, the three guys growing up that I really admired was Jim Courier, Michael Chang, and Andre Agassi. In order to play like these players that I was idolizing, you know, I, I needed to get fitter. And I, I, I played a match at Kalamazoo, which is, you know, the most amazing junior tournament in the world. You know, they just do – it's the pinnacle of junior tennis. And I know – Anybody listening, all the junior players and the coaches, I'm actually going to Kalamazoo this year. I'm going to be part of the exhibition. It's it's the highlight of the year. I mean, that's what you really strive to get to. So playing in that tournament, I actually lost to one of my good friends, Mike Bryan, you know, part of the Bryan brothers, the, you know, the best doubles team in the world. And I lost the match in three sets. And I was so disappointed because of my fitness failed me in the match. And so, you know, what did you do? I mean, that's 
that's a horrible feeling. I know I've I've watched kids in that situation and um it's just it's terribly frustrating. And so you know, what how did you know what to do and what did you do at that point? Oh, I think I lost you, Mike. I did lose you. Okay, I'm gonna call you right back. I'm not sure what happened there. Uh, let's get Mike back on the line. You've reached Michael All right. Russell. You there? Please leave your Oops. name, number, and I'll get back <laughs> to you as possible. Thank you. All right, I'm gonna try him one more time. For some reason, we got disconnected. I apologize to the listeners and Mike. Um, hang on, I'm coming back to you. Mike, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Mike? Okay, so we dropped yeah, okay. you. I apologize for that. So <laughs> yeah. you were you were just starting to talk about your match against Mike Bryan at Kalamazoo yeah. um, and how right. your fitness led you down there. And I was asking you, I don't know if you heard my question, but how did. how did you know what to do at that point to, to make the positive change? So... I- I knew that the the reason that my fitness failed me was because of my own choices. You know, I, I wasn't putting in the extra time, not only on a nutrition standpoint, but also from a fitness standpoint, whether that was core exercises, doing sprints, uh, endurance, you know, you know, and especially at that time, you know, we're talking back in 1994, you know, athleticism and fitness trainings, especially tennis-specific fitness training, you know, has really progressed over the years. So at that time, you know, I decided I needed to create a program to get to the level of fitness that I wanted to be. I didn't want to lose a match because of my fitness anymore. Because in tennis, there's very few things that you can control. You know, I feel it has more variables than any other sport in the world between, you know, different balls every week, different tournaments, you have a different opponent, you have to deal with the environmental elements, the wind, the sun, the traveling. So it's, it's so many variables. So I wanted to try to eliminate the variables that I could control. And by doing so, my game just catapulted. You know, the, the following year, I finished number one in the country in singles and doubles. I won the Kalamazoo title in singles and doubles. I was elected to the USTA national team. And we, we traveled around the world playing the international Grand Slams, you know, Junior Grand Slams, Wimbledon, French Open, Australian Open, and U.S. Open. And it just changed my life forever. I'm getting my mantra. I now, you know, fitness is a part of my lifestyle. You know, I, I work out still to this day, you know, six days a week. And it just, not only is it a great stress reliever, but it just allows me to mentally prepare for every day. It's just part of my routine. But it, it, it was it was hard work. I mean, it, it, was a, it was a mental sacrifice establishing that routine, you know, knowing that, okay, I had to go through some, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, as you'd call it, in order to get to that goal where I wanted to be. And, you know, just like anything, when you when you set goals, it's tough to get there, but then you can measure your pro- your progress. And I could see how I was getting fitter. I was getting stronger. My tournament results were getting better because of it, and I continued to to progress and develop my routine and and change it throughout the years, depending on you know how I felt physically, any injuries I had, and as well as you know, the knowledge that I that I learned along the way from different physical fitness gurus and and mentors and my own experiences. And so, when you first set out to improve your fitness. Like you said, the the science wasn't really there back in 94. I mean, this is a a pretty recent area in the fitness world to have tennis-specific training recommendations and have the science to back it up. So what resources did you use at that point? So we did have the Internet in 94. It wasn't (laughs) obviously as widely used as it is now, but we, we did have the Internet, and then... I also used several books, 
you know, a lot of literary books. There was quite a few instructional books, not only on tennis, but uh, fitness and tennis-related books, um, some written by people affiliated with USTA. I don't remember exactly the books that I read just because obviously it's a long time ago, but you know, I, I would, I would gather the information and a lot of it was trial and error. So I was basically a self guinted which it's not always great because, you know, you can get injured, you can start getting in, in bad habits because you, know, you want to create that muscle memory that is conducive to, you know, good quality repetition, you know, on the tennis court and off the tennis court. But you know, I was willing to sacrifice that in order to find a routine that fit my game style and my personality. So basically I, I did anything and everything fitness wise until I figured out which was the best routine for me. And it's not, you know, it's not ideal, but knowing what I know now, you know, I, I can, I share that with a lot of the, the players that I work with, you know, what's beneficial for tennis players and, and what sort of exercises and recovery routines may not be as beneficial for tech-specific, you know, exercises and, and players. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of debate in the tennis world, and I'm I'm part of all these online forums with coaches, and and there's always conversation around to weightlift or not to weightlift as a tennis player. Um, I don't know your specific fitness routine, but just, Looking at you, you know, from a physical standpoint, it looks very obvious to me that weightlifting has been part of your fitness program. Is that the case? And if mm-hmm. so, how did you kind of come to that? I mean, yeah, I'm definitely very muscular. Some of that is genetics, but 80% is, is you know, I, I do spend a lot, a lot of time in the gym, but it's not, it's not heavy weights. You know, I, I put on muscle very easy, but it, it's all designed the way I created my program. So I didn't, I didn't start lifting weights until I was 16. And a lot of people would say, well, that's, that's really early. But, you know, 25, 30 years ago, that was actually late. I mean, I know some people that were lifting at 14, but I never lifted heavy. You know, I, I'm a big proponent of higher rep, lower weight, uh, weight exercise. And I, I think, I think that's important. You know, I know there's a lot of information out there and a, a lot of people stress that weightlifting closes the, the growth plates. So I think, I think it's important to establish a weight program, but tennis specific, lightweight, higher repetition, because when you're on the tennis court, you're, you're breaking down your muscle. And I know a lot of people don't realize that you're breaking down muscle fibers. If you're on a hard court, you're basically doing uh, an hour and a half to two hours of sprints on asphalt. It's almost like a parking lot back and forth. Not very good for you. It's not good for your knees. It's not good for your lower back. And you're breaking down everything. So in order to to be able to withstand all the rigors of, you know, running side to side and hitting, hitting a tennis ball, you need to have muscle endurance. And especially with modern day tennis, as being as physical as it is, you need to have those explosive exercises in a controlled environment. So I am a proponent of lifting weights, lightweight, high repetition, and I wouldn't start until you're 16 years old, until, you know, you're more developed physically. And as long as you're not sacrificing any type of, you know, growth plate reduction and it can be detrimental. Okay, great. So let's let's transition that at some point I would – suspect around that same time um, when you were incorporating these incredible fitness regimens into your training and and seeing these incredible results, uh, you made a decision to play college tennis instead of going straight to the pro tour. What was involved in that decision? Yeah, that was a tough decision. So we sit down as a family and we discussed it. I had a very good junior career, but I hadn't really had that much professional success. And I know I wanted. I went to a private school in Michigan. I had very good academics, and I didn't want to put all that aside 
to just jump right into the pro circuit without having any results because, you know, once you jump out in the pro tour, it's not that easy to come back and, and finish school, let alone give up a college scholarship somewhere. And, you know, college scholarships are also very, very expensive and very lucrative. So you don't want to give up that, you know, nowadays it can be forty to $50,000 a year to go to school without having a scholarship. So I was fortunate at the time because the junior coach that I worked with, Rodney Harmon, with the USTA, he just took the head coaching position at the University of Miami, Florida. And he knew that if I were to attend college, that I would be able to go out on a tour, you know, after one or two years. That was my goal. So coming into Miami, I played number one singles. I played all the top players in the country and still got... I still was able to play over 70 matches in college and in a structured platform, you know, college they have, not only do you have the coaches that are working with you every day, I think nowadays it's 20 hours a week, but you have the gym right there, you have physios, all the travel is completely structured. And then most important is I got subjected to the college environment, you know, the social skills plus academics I was able to you know, see what college life is like and work towards getting my degree, which is which is most important. So my time at Miami was great, and I was still focused on trying to become a professional tennis player while I was at Miami, but I was still subjected to a college tennis and the environment and working towards my degree. I think it was a much more balanced lifestyle, and the fact that I had so much success at Miami as a freshman I finished number seven in the country, and I won the Rolex National Indoors. And at the time, I had the all-season high, all-season singles wins. So I, you know, I, I really pushed the envelope at Miami to, to be one of the best players I ever played there. And that that was one of the reasons why I went there. So then after my freshman year, I played as an amateur. And I, it was at the time when I still had satellites. Now they have futures. So I played eight weeks, and I went into those two satellites. I think I was ranked 1,600. I had one ATP point um, from eight months prior when I played a satellite. And at the end of the two months, I was already ranked 300 in the world. So I finished second in both satellites. And at that time, that's when I said, okay, you know what? You know, I'm, I'm 19 years old. I'm 300 in the world. I've already proven that, you know, I, I pretty much dominated the college scene except for the NCAAs. I think it's a, a prime moment for me to turn professional and see how I do, you know, and, and as long as I make the promise to return to school one day and finish my degree, you know, tennis has such a short lifespan. I obviously pushed that many, many years, but, you know, usually the, the, the typical career on entry tour is, is usually not more than 10 years. So I wanted to, you know, really give myself a chance to be professional because I worked so hard the years prior and then I made the decision to turn professional in February of 1998. Were your parents involved in that decision, or was it more of a conversation between you and Rodney, um, or a combination? It was, yeah, it was the, the biggest conversation was between my parents and myself. Um, you know, we talked about it, had lengthy discussions. Rodney was involved, and we just, you know, we decided for me to return to Miami as a sophomore, I would really be returning just to try to win NCAA, you know, the singles title. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I felt to make a commitment for, you know, nine months out of the, the school season just to win NCAAs, there's not only is it a lot of pressure, not, you know, pressure is good, but that's that's extreme pressure, you know, just one tournament, nine months. And the fact that I already had so much success and had, I tasted success at the pro level already just in two months, you know, we decided as long as I returned one day to finish my degree, that this was the right moment to turn professional. I was excited. I was motivated. And the USTA was going to help me for the first year and a half with providing a, a coach that a bunch of the players shared. And that also helped as well. So uh, there's, you know, a big, kind of movement now again for for these top juniors to go straight to the pro tour we've seen it a lot and then 
you know, we see stories like Noah Rubin, who goes to Wake Forest for a year, gets to the NCAA finals, um, has a, like you, a phenomenal freshman year, and decides to hit the pro tour at the end of it. Um, If you were guiding someone now, I mean, do you have regrets about the way you went about it? Do you, I mean, even in terms of, gosh, I wish I hadn't gone to Miami that one year, I wish I'd gone straight to the tour, or do you feel like the way you did it was ideal for you at that time? I definitely think the way I did it was ideal at that time. You know, physically I wasn't ready to withstand the demands of the pro tour. You know, at 18 and 17, you're competing with, with men. You know, I'm still a teenager. And, you know, most of these, these players are 25, 26 years old, have been traveling around the world for many years. They have their own physios, their own teams, much more experience than I did. And I, I hadn't tasted that success at that level. You know, I, I'd only tasted the success at a junior level. And so for me, it was natural to, to go to college and then try to be successful at that level, which I was. I'm a proponent of going to school, but, you know, if you see players, you know, 17 years old and they're, and they're already having success at a high level, like already on the pro tour, then I think that the decision becomes a little more complicated. But for my situation and the way I was physically, I wasn't ready to withstand those demands and, and I didn't think I could have success. And I think if I didn't go to college, I would have, I would have lost a lot of matches, a lot of early, um, very early. And I think it would have crushed my motivation as well as my desire to be a pro tennis player. So I think that one year at Miami really helped me develop physically. You know, like I said, I played over 70 matches, which is, you know, incredible because in, you know, in juniors, at the time, you know, I, I usually played about 10 to 12 tournaments a year, and I was lucky if I got, you know, 40 to 45 matches. So in college, when I'm playing all these matches, it, it just really helped to solidify my game. You know, the way I was playing and you know, moving well and and get even more fit, and then be exposed to to some great coaching with Rodney. And my father was still able to help me, you know, when I came home during spring break and on holidays. So I'm a proponent of going to school, but I know, you know, especially right now with the new generation, there's, you know, six to eight, 17, 18 year olds that are exceptional. And I'm sure there's going to be at least three or four that have some great pro careers. You know, it's just the other three or four that if they don't make it, you know, then they're going to have to go back to school and, and hope it's will and get a degree and, and be successful in, in another aspect. Right. So, I mean, when you hit the tour, you were still a teenager, though, yeah? You were 19 at the time, is that right? I was, I just, yeah, I was 19, and um, it was difficult. You know, I, I started, I went out and I played Futures, and I went to Europe right away. And I, I just recovered from a from a broken arm. I broke my humerus, had a spiral fracture. And so it, it was, you know, I went out and it was difficult. I was playing on indoor carpet in Austria. It was a beautiful place, but I was losing matches. First round, second round, futures, not getting any points. It was lonely. I didn't know anybody. It was hard to get food, you know, at the time. I didn't speak German. So, you know, it's just one of the experiences where, you know, you're in college, everything's protected. You have this big umbrella around you where everything's provided for you. Basically, somebody holding your hand. No, it's not a mountain to go to her and, and nobody cares. And, and then you're, you're out there fending for yourself. So I learned very quickly, real world experience that, you know, I had to establish either not only a team around me, but I had to mature very fast in order to be successful at this level. Was there ever a point that first year where you were tempted to just buy a one-way ticket back to the States? There were a few times in, in, in my career where, you know, I had a lengthy schedule where I didn't, I didn't schedule the tournaments correctly, maybe played a few many tournaments in a row. And then you can definitely have a little bit of disappointment and, you're, you know, you're far away from the United States, you're alone. Uh, it can definitely get 
uh, very, very disappointing and uh, come in. So, you know, fortunately, a few times my brother actually came to the tournament to help me out. Uh, this is early on in my career. And, you know, USTA, we did have a traveling team after my first six months, and I think that helped as well because I had some other American players that I traveled with so that we could not only practice with each other, but, you know, we, we pushed each other a little bit. So that is a healthy competition. You know, if I saw one guy playing really well, I wanted to taste that same level of success. And I think that's also very important. How did you reconcile having a social life? Because I know you're married, you have a family. Um, reconcile that and reconcile your nutrition and fitness program when you were traveling um, and and your desire to complete your college degree. How did you make all of that happen? It's difficult, you know, just like anything, but a lot of it's time management. You know, I'm very, you know, I, I made reference to it, I'm very goal-oriented. You know, some people would, would say a little bit obsessed. So when I make a plan and I make a goal, you know, I, I, I will accomplish it. So when... I met my wife in 2004. You know, I already had my nutrition program established, but my wife, coming from a health and fitness background, she was a fitness competitor. She also had similar goals that I did, and we have a lot of similarities. And she would she would travel from 2004 to 2010. She was traveling with me sporadically, but then in 2010, we made a commitment that she would travel full time and really be a part of my team, not only on the managing side, but also on the culinary side. So she was, we were actually staying in apartments at a lot of the tournaments and she would create all the, all the meals and make my life a lot easier from a, from a nutritional standpoint. Cause I didn't have to worry so much about trying to get the right nutrition or trying to find, you know, a restaurant that, you know, if we're not in a city that a large metropolitan city, you know, she could create something that would be in line with my new nutritional program. As far as going back and, and finishing my degree, I was also fortunate that the, at the time, the ATP had a program where you could finish your online degree with University of Phoenix. And I was able to apply and receive a full scholarship. So it was difficult to get three years straight with no break while I was still competing. So I, I joke with one of the guys because we always talk about it. One year in Australia, I played Juan Martin Del Pocho in a night match on High Center Arena, which is the second stadium. And we played a four-set match. I finished at 11 p.m. And then I had to take a three-hour math final afterwards. And I, I'm sure there weren't too many players taking a, yeah, taking a math final after playing a four-set match. But that was just part of my personality. So, you know, w- when I... When I agree to do something, I, I always want to make sure I do it to 100%. So I, I finished my degree with honors, which I'm obviously very proud of. And I was also able to balance, you know, the social part and creating very, very good time management skills along the way. But, you know, on the pro tour, you had to set aside your your social uh, points that you really want to create because, you know, it's a business, you know, especially nowadays. When I first started in 98, there's a lot more socializing going on. It was more of a of a team as far as the whole tour. You know, you would play tennis, then you'd play matches, then you'd go out and, you you know, you'd have dinner together and just kind of hang out. And even some of the guys would, you know, go to the nightclubs together. But, you know, now with being such a business, you know, everybody keeps to their own teams because the sport has increased financially dramatically and you know in order to, to have that success you know the, the social aspect has to be you know, put aside because of because of the demands that's necessary with the with the recovery you know I spent two and a half hours a day on recovery with stretching massaging icing in order to be able to you know play how I played you know, and especially well over the age of 30 and still have success. And, and you see that a lot now, you know, that the players aren't socializing as much as they used to. And that's, 
that's one of the reasons why I loved college so much because college, there is a, that social aspect that you have that complements the, the training and the academics. Right. So what was your degree in? Uh, business administration. And so I, I think this is the perfect time to <laughs> to move into a conversation about your um, post professional tennis life and um, mm-hmm. your your recent involvement in Aerobar. And I'd love mm-hmm. for you to talk about Aerobar and how your involvement with the company really marries your love of sport, your love of training, nutrition, um, and obviously utilizes your business degree pretty well. So you yeah. talk a little bit about how you got involved and who your partners are and, and what the company's all about. Of course. So my last match was in August last year at the U.S. Open. And after the U.S. Open, I took two to three months off just to not travel. You know, I've been traveling for 35 weeks a year for 20 years, you know, being a part of the, the tennis lifestyle. So I took three three months off and and just to relax, not travel, enjoy the retirement life a little bit. And then in January of this year, I started Michael Russell Tennis, which is a tennis program here in Houston where I work with high-performance juniors and elite athletes, athletes. So because... You know, not only am I developing the players, but I want to mentor them through all my vast experiences, you know, of playing through the juniors and collegiate days and on the pro tour. You know, I think it's extremely important for our young our young kids coming up that they, they have that exposure to somebody that has so much experience like I do. That being said, with being involved in tennis, when I was at Miami, three of my, my good friends, Mark, Rob, and Andrew, they contacted me about two and a half years ago while I was still playing. And we talked about creating an energy bar and they were really excited. You know, they said tennis doesn't have an energy bar and we'd love for, to try to get into that environment. And I think it'd be a, a great business opportunity. You know, what do you think? And I was all for it. I agreed. You know, I, I tested every different nutritional bar and, you know, there's some good ones out there, but I felt there was a, an area that we could create something that a lot of the other nutritional bars didn't have, you know, especially for, for not only tennis, but athletes, you know, really providing key nutrients and stuff and ingredients that taste well, not just because a lot of the bars, it doesn't have, you know, they don't have great flavors. So it took two years of testing and developing the bar. And I was instrumental in in testing while I was playing and in and out of competition and creating the ingredients because all my experiences of you know like I said of, of dealing with different bars I, I wasn't sold on a bar where I had one I was like you know what this is really easy to digest it tastes great and I'm getting all the nutrients so finally after two years I feel we perfected it we created. Aerobar, we just launched it, and you know I think it epitomizes that health, healthy lifestyle. You know, it's, it's a it's a gluten free, all natural ingredient, and it tastes great. And we created two flavors so far. We have chocolate chip and uh, honey cinnamon, and all the feedback from. All- All right, Mike, we just lost you again. I don't know what is going on, but I'm calling you back if you if you can hear me. I'm hoping you can uh, get back on the air with us quickly. Listeners, I apologize for the drop. Mike, you there? I'm here. Okay, so sorry. Okay, so honey cinnamon and chocolate chip and... Yeah, and those are the two two flavors that we've created so far, and we have a whole um, nutritional and and flavor line that we expect to expand in the future. But the feedback has been phenomenal. Um, Every single athlete and every single non-athlete who's tasted it, they love it. Uh, It's easy to digest, and you know, all all my players are always asking me for more. And you know, I I think it's really gonna 
be a big hit in the market because it is, you know, especially nowadays with everybody so concerned with, you know, healthy living, which is extremely important. You know, we want to, whatever we eat, we want to make sure we're getting good, good ingredients and nutrients in our bodies that helps, helps perform not only on the court, but just in our everyday lives. You know, everybody's very hectic. It's very stressful. And, and part of the Arabar mantra is, you know, life is a sport. Are you playing? And that just refers to that healthy lifestyle. You're getting the right ingredients and right nutritional uh, elements and electrolytes to replenish the demands of everyday life. And I think, you know, we, we've done a great job of creating that. It's taken two and a half years, which is a long time, but that's what, what, what's necessary to create a great product. Uh, and I'm really excited about it. So is Arrow Bar a bar that players will eat on court during matches, or is it a, a recovery bar? Um, how are you anticipating it will be used by the players themselves? Yeah, so so its main focus is as an energy bar. So eaten, eaten while you're on court or prior to any type of exercise. You know, it gives you a lot of energy. We, we, we haven't created the recovery bar yet. You know, that would that would have a little more protein and, and especially amino acids as far as because that's what's most important in recovery. This is more geared towards creating the sodium and potassium content, which is what you lose a lot when you're on the court. So this replenishes all of those key nutrients and electrolytes, and it, it really helps you reach that finish line. You know, I... I sound like a salesperson, but obviously I've been testing this bar for a long time, and we've been, you know, through a lot, and it's just, it just, I'm really happy that it, we finally got to the point where we're at, and it's, I'm proud of it. It tastes, it tastes phenomenal. You mentioned that it's gluten-free, and the whole gluten-free lifestyle has been very much in the news the last few years. Um, kind of starting with, with Novak Djokovic, you know, sharing that he went gluten-free and then, you know, all of a sudden everybody's on that bandwagon. Um, right. Yours truly uh, included in that. <laughs> I'm a recent convert mm-hmm. as well. Not as religious as those of you making your living with your bodies. But um, I I find it so interesting, and, and I was kind of one of those people who was really skeptical about the whole gluten-free thing, um, especially for people who didn't have a proven allergy to gluten, you know, why Why right. would you eliminate it from your diet if you're not allergic or having trouble di- digesting it? Um, but like I said, as a recent convert, I I have noticed that I feel a whole lot better <laughs> when I stay away from it. Um, are you gluten-free? And, and was that, you know, keeping the bar gluten-free, was that one of the, the goals from the outset? And what other nutritional uh, factors were important to you as a player to have included in this product? Yeah, so I'm mostly gluten-free. I did tinker with being 100% gluten-free while I was playing on tour. And at the time, I felt it was too difficult while I was traveling internationally to try to be 100% gluten-free. It was just in order to get all those meals prepared 100% gluten-free. It was just it was almost impossible with the logistics. So, but to this day, I'm still mostly gluten-free in, in the meals that my wife prepares and that we eat. And that was that was one of the, the major factors when we created this bar. You know, having a gluten-free bar, you're not creating any problems that could potentially arise, you know, because I know gluten a lot of times, I'm a little bit gluten intolerant or sensitive. You know, I don't have a, an allergy, but I do notice when I have gluten, I feel a little more bloated. It's a little heavier in the stomach, especially when you're on the core or you're any type of exercise, you're, you know, you're demanding, you're, you're running side to side. You don't want to have that heaviness in your stomach. You know, now all the blood that's in your legs working hard, it's transferring all of a sudden to your stomach to try to break down what's in your in your in your gut, and so that was a that was a key element of, of the Aerobar was having it gluten free, and then we also wanted to focus on sodium and potassium because 
as an athlete, when you when you sweat and you're physically working so hard, whatever exercise and sport you're playing, you lose a lot of electrolytes and nutrients. And we wanted to make sure that as a bar, you're replacing some of those because a lot of the a lot of athletes use drinks, but it's still important to get the caloric intake from something that's edible that you can sustain a little bit longer energy and and that was a key point of Aerobar as well. And lastly, we wanted to make sure that the ingredients were all natural. We didn't want to include a lot of processed ingredients or elements that would not be part of our mission. You know, Aerobar wants to be, you know, a leader in, in all natural, healthy bars, a lifestyle. And and that was along with our with our mission that we wanted to create that energy bar that's gluten-free, all-natural, and tastes great. And so the last part, tasting great, was the most was the most difficult because, you know, when you add all-natural ingredients, it's gluten-free, you know, you create a bar, but sometimes the, the taste isn't there. And you want to be able to eat something that you enjoy eating. And it took a while to, to finally get those key ingredients that, that makes it great tasting. And, and now that we've found that, you know, I'm eating arrow bars just as snacks, you know, because it's light. It's not heavy in my stomach, so it's something I can take on the go even when I'm not on the court. And, you know, that, that's that's what we're we're really proud of, and, and we're we're getting in the hands of all the all the players and, and non-players because of the fact that we're able to create this, this gluten-free, all-natural, great-tasting bar. So you're partners in this, in addition to your buddies from Miami, um, are John Isner, Stevie Johnson, James Blake, um, two active players on the Pro Tour, another um, recently retired player in James. And I'd love to hear, because there's been a lot of conversation, especially with USTA player development, about the importance of keeping you guys involved in the sport, and and I'm specifically talking about you and James, as recently retired pros, um, and and having you there to share your experience with the players coming up, Aerobar is one way that you're doing that. Your academy seems to be another way. What are your feelings about your role as an ambassador for U.S. tennis and tennis development. Yeah, I mean, I think it's along the same lines as, as being a brand ambassador for Aerobar. You know, all four of us are brand ambassadors. It's it's important to establish your brand, you know, as, as a human being, as a player. So I established that my brand is someone that came through juniors, the collegiate rankings, and the pro tour with dignity and professionalism and played as hard as I could. You know, I tried to have a great time in court. You know, if you watch my matches, usually I'm you know, smiling. And, you know, I always gave it 100%. And that's what my persona was. And I think it's important to give back to the sport that has given so much to me. And that's why I wanted to stay in tennis. Not only do I have a PhD in tennis because of all my experiences and my successes, but it's important to mentor all these players coming up because... You know, it is only a small percentage of of kids that will be professional tennis players, but, you know, you're mentoring them for life. You know, you you want to give them that experience so that they grow up to be be great human beings, you know, whether that's in the business world or the athletic world, whatever they decide to do. You know, your experiences help shape these lives. And I think not only with with Aerobar is it important to see that, that you're still involved in the community and with nutrition, which is so important, but also with tennis as well, because it's a great sport. It's a sport of a lifetime. And, you know, as, as we're talking here, I'm, you know, I'm parenting aces. It's, it's so important for the parents and the coaches and the players to realize that, you know, you're, you're building something throughout your life. You know, you, you create a goal and, and you want to work as hard as you can towards that goal. And things things in your life will change. You'll have to adapt. You have to adjust to different circumstances. But as long as you still give 100% to everything that you're trying to accomplish, you can have that success. And I, you know, it's and it's important that you know I know James is doing that with 
with his passions and, and commentating and, and still being involved in, in tennis and with the USTA Foundation. I'm doing it with my academy and with Aerobar and whatever future opportunities come up, uh, either with the USTA or along with more tennis-specific opportunities. I know, you know Stevie and John are doing that through their professional experiences on the tour. You know, it's just really important that we set that good example for all our youth and the generations to come. I love that all four brand ambassadors for Aerobar are come have come through the college tennis ranks. I think that yeah. speaks very highly for the value of college tennis and um I I'm sure you probably aren't aware of this, but um Parenting Aces is taking part in putting on a small junior tournament up in Baltimore next month, uh, in honor of the memory of, of a friend of college tennis and he kind of created this hashtag save college tennis and so we're we're trying to continue his good work and continue to promote the college game and keep it alive and kicking and um hopefully prevent any more programs from getting cut that seems to be yeah. uh, a common thread that's been going on and uh so i you know i i see the value in even the fact that you were at Miami for one year but you valued your education enough to make the commitment to get your degree while on tour and to parlay that degree and your the knowledge gained through achieving your degree into your post tennis life i think it's it's phenomenal and i i can't even say post tennis life is wrong because you're still involved in the game i should say right. um post tour life maybe is a better way to say that but you know and i love that you keep throwing out the word mentor because that's what our kids need. I mean, we parents are certainly, you know, at the top of the list in terms of influencing our children, especially in their younger years. But, um, you know, my baby is turning 20 today, so I no longer have a teenager. And um, I can say that, you know, as our kids enter their teen years, having someone outside of the parents to be a positive role model for them and a positive influence is key. And so thank you for taking on that role of mentor and understanding how valuable it is. Yeah, you're welcome. I mean, I, I really enjoy it. And, you know, I agree. I mean, I think it's great about, about the college tennis as well. I mean, when I, when I went to Miami, I wanted to only go for a year or two, but if I needed to stay all four years because I wasn't having that success, I was prepared to have that because I knew how important it was to get my degree and to be a part of, of the college system because, you know, in order you have to have a degree in order to be successful and do what you want to do in the, in the business world if you're not a professional tennis player. And that's what we're talking about is that, that mentorship. And I understand because growing up, my father was my coach and, and he would say a lot of things and, you know, I would, absorb it and I would take it to heart but then a lot of times you know I had outside voices and outside sources that would tell me about something and sometimes I would absorb that a little better because it wasn't coming from a parent you know I I gravitated towards that more and you know it's just I think that's just a natural relationship between parent and child yes there's always that's the most important mentor relationship but it does help to have those outside voices and you know, I, I love the sport and I love helping people and, you know, it's my passion. So, you know, I'm always happy to, to do it, and whether it's with tennis or injuries for all the injuries that I've had and rehabbing. It's just, you know, part of my mantra and my philosophy is, is giving back. And, you know, it gives you a sense of fulfillment when you, you go out and help someone and they really take it to heart and you can see them implement implement that information, whether it's on a tennis court or, you know, rehabilitation, you know, just it gives you a great feeling knowing that you're helping someone, and that's, that's the whole goal, and that brings me satisfaction. Well, that's I love hearing that from you. I can tell you I saw you play professionally several times, and um, I, I will definitely say you always had a smile on your face. You always seemed happy to be out there, 
And I want to thank you for the positive influence that you have been and continue to be in our sport. And I I hope that you'll stick with it for lots of years and and keep influencing our young players coming up. And, um, you know, if if we can raise more young players young players to come up in, with the attitude of Mike Russell with that work ethic, with your commitment to uh, excellence, with the, the 